Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to our life journeys, finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. Today, I bring you a conversation with Liz Goldman. Liz is my professional coach and has been assisting individuals and groups in accessing their unique gifts and wisdom for over 20 years. This conversation was such a joy for me. Liz painted a fantastic picture of growing up in a cultural and community-focused household in diverse New York City. Her journey of becoming a professional life and business coach and finding her purpose which is serving others. This conversation allowed me to see Liz wholeheartedly in such a broad lens for all that she is, a creative, adventurous, multifaceted person with deep interests in community, communications, history, culture, art, literature, diversity, and most importantly, being of service to others. What stood out to me was Liz's connection to her inner wisdom that she seemed to always rely on when making life decisions. It made me realize on a deeper level why I enjoy Liz being my coach and what makes her style of coaching a fit for me, as creating a space for my inner wisdom and listening to it is something I have been growing into. The key topics that we discussed during this episode were related to what does it mean to be a coach and how coaching fits into our support system. We discussed leadership, building your leadership and its relation to inspiration, benefits of slowing down and connecting to your inner wisdom, being more courageous and be willing to be messy, clunky and awkward. And lastly, the importance of cultivating greater trust and self-trust, starting from us first, changing our conversation or starting a new conversation with ourselves that allows us to change how we see our reality and move into a space of possibilities. You can see some of my favorite quotes from this conversation in description of this podcast. There are many and I will only read a few for you. About life. I believe we all come into our lives with certain lessons to learn and opportunities to grow. On tips and skills. One of the most productive skills I have seen people take into their lives is to be willing to be messy, to be willing to be clunky, and to be willing to be awkward. And on leadership and shifting to a world of possibilities. If we slow down and focus on ourselves, bring it back into what is happening inside of us, what do we need, how can we show up better, what are our values, and to really look at us and then extend out from there, we can change our reality, sometimes very quickly and sometimes it is a longer process, but there is so much more possible from that place. And now, enjoy the listen. Hello, Liz. Hi there. Great to be here with you. Thank you. 
Thank you. I'm excited. It's fun. I look forward to diving into your experience in life. I'm here to share. How would you like to begin? I think the best place to begin is give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. I am Liz Goldman. I am originally an East Coaster, but I live in Southern California and I am a life and business coach working with all kinds of people in various different industries, men and women. I'm also a mother to two teenage girls, which is a big part of my life. And I bring a lot of that to my work. That's enough of an introduction for now. And I'm sure we will get into more of that as we talk. Yes, excellent. And you're also my coach. So thank you. I am your coach. Yes, I have the privilege of being your coach. Thank you. It's been a pleasure working with you, I believe, for almost three years now. Yes. Thank you for accepting my invitation and being a game for this podcast, Liz. As I typically ask a lot of my guests, I start with their upbringing. I like to understand what makes people tick. And the way we grow up, the early part of our lives really helps shape of what we're interested in and how we go around the world and perceive the world. How was your upbringing? I was born in New York City, and I lived in Manhattan for the first few years of my life. I had an older brother and a little bit later, a younger sister. So I'm the middle of three children. And when I was still young, we moved just outside of New York City um, to a town called Rye, which is in Westchester, beautiful suburb, about 30 minutes outside the city. So I grew up in a home where there was a lot of playing, a lot of being outside. And my father was very committed to his work. My dad was a music industry executive my whole life. He's now retired. My dad drove into the city every day. And that was, a, in many ways, fun profession for him to be in because it meant we got to see and meet a lot of musicians and go to concerts and I think my first concert was when I was five or six. And he traveled a lot. So my father was around and my father traveled a lot. So he wasn't as participatory, I would say, in my upbringing. And my mother was a stay-at-home mom who did a lot of philanthropic work, which I'll get into more later because that had a lot of impact on me. Growing up, it was, I would say, in a lot of ways, really wonderful in the sense that we had full lives. My parents were very committed to our education. I went to a progressive private school in New York City, which also had a big impact on me in the long term, which I can talk more about. Lots of kids around, lots of family around. I grew up Jewish, so that was a part of my upbringing as well, being in community that way. And there were also a lot of challenges growing up. There were a lot of communication issues within my family, a lot of my parents not quite knowing how to communicate that clearly. So we looked really happy and like everything was good and there was a lot of good and there was a lot of strain and challenge interrelationally, which made me at a very early age, I think, very, very interested in how people connect, how they relate and how we have relationship in the world. 
I love that. And I would love to dive to different parts of your story. Sure. Manhattan. I lived on the East Coast, as you know, for a couple of years. Yeah. And the city is fun. I find it it's fun to visit, but how does to live there? I always find it such a jungle and it seems like then you living there and moving to Rye, which Rye seems more peaceful. Yes. Not a countryside, but more smaller uh, town. Yes. But going between those two, it seems almost day and night difference. <laughs> How do you find Manhattan or even the whole experience? Well, presently, I'm not going to New York right now, given the pandemic. But I would say in my later adult years, I find going to New York City fun for about two days, and then I have to leave. <laughs> That's about my experience. <laughs> yeah, it's just too much. I love New York. It holds such a special place in my heart, but I can't be there for long. But growing up and in my 20s, when I lived in the city on the Upper West Side, I love New York. And I had the good fortune to be able to be in Manhattan, to be with my friends, to go to theater, to have my social life. And I got to leave every day because I could retreat to what was more peaceful. And I think that it did create some balance for me and my family. In fact, I was just talking with my daughters last night with my parents. We had dinner together and we were talking about that shift, being able to go into the city and have this very independent, fast life in the 80s as a teenager and go home. And I loved being able to go to my home and sit in my room or sit in my backyard and go on a bike ride. I lived right behind the water and I loved going to the water and it was very peaceful. So I never felt really fried. And even when I was in my twenties and I moved back into the city after college and I actually moved out of the country and lived in Italy for a while, when I came back, Whenever the city, when I was living there and it got a little too much, I could always go back home and hang out and get that out breath, if you will. So I think that's what made it for me a lot more palatable. And now my family has all moved here. So when I would go back, I'd hit my threshold after a couple of days. <laughs> so I, I hear you. Yeah. So all your families now moved to the West Coast? My sister and my parents live here. My brother is still back East. Okay. So given that my parents moved here about seven years ago, I go back, but there's less mm. kind of migrating back home, if you will. Yes, that's interesting. What made them all move to the West Coast, the California, nicer weather, you being here? <laughs> or they realized, let's forget the East Coast, the winters are tough. We want to live in the better weather. Well, my sister came first, and I think for her, she was always living in Manhattan, and she works in the entertainment business, and she just hit a place where it just was too much. She wanted a change of pace, and mm. she was able to transfer what she did out here because her industry is largely here. So that was really her impetus, mm. and my parents, it was everything you said. Two of their three children were here. They had two granddaughters here, my kids. My parents are born and raised in New York City, in Brooklyn and the Bronx. And the winters were too tough. It was hard to keep up with 
that pace and they just didn't want to anymore. I remember being really shocked that once they decided that they never looked back. And I thought, my God, you guys are born and bred New Yorkers generation after generation. How is it so easy to come to LA? And they were really clear. They're like, we just turned a corner and they love living here. I mean, they miss their grandsons. My brother has two boys, but they have their granddaughters here and we're very close. I think they miss it, but they have no regrets. So I think they just were done. Mm -hmm. It's a draining, wonderful, hard place to be. And when you come here and life is at a slower pace, the weather can't be beat. There are a lot of upsides. Yes. And it's interesting, the change, the East Coast, West Coast. I commend your parents on making the decision and uh, we're done with the winter. We're going to move to the West Coast and have a different life. Yes. I would guess even the industry is probably different. I have some friends that were in the entertainment industry and they always said the attitude or the way the entertainment music industry, you mentioned that your dad and your sister is part of in New York is quite different than in LA. How was that adjustment? Curious about their view and stories, how it works, New York versus LA. And I know you were in the entertainment industry for a while as well. I was, yes. I worked at HBO in New York City. My sense is, and they might say something different, is that it's different for my sister and my dad. The music business, the major companies were based out of Manhattan for many, many, many years. So you had offices, you had what they termed West Coast offices at the time, but all the major labels were New York based. So my dad was right where everything was from a business standpoint. And we actually, as kids came to LA once a year. So my dad had meetings out here once a year. So I grew up coming to LA for my spring break in April. So Los Angeles was a known place, but it was kind of like a fantasy land. I never conceived of it as a place to live. It was like a fun fantasy land to come visit. And my dad did his business thing. And then we went back to what at the time for us was more real world. The sensibility is so, so different between LA and New York. Whereas my sister, she worked in television marketing and a lot of those predominantly that work because all those studios were LA based. So she was in a different arm. And then for her to come to LA meant her coming to where her work was more centralized. My guess is she would say she came closer to where everything is centered. Whereas my father was at a point in his career where he left major record labels and he had his own consulting business he was winding himself down and he could really take meetings and do things over the phone or fly. So for him to leave New York, I don't think it was of much consequence. He might say something different, but I don't think so. On the note, I'm curious, you mentioned your first concert was when you were five years old. Do you remember who was the concert with? Oh, yeah. Who were some of your favorite concert experiences? Your dad was spramming the labels in the music industry. I'm curious. Well, my first concert ever, you may have never have heard of them, was the Bay City Rollers. Huh, I don't know if they made it to Czech Republic. <laughs> it's funny, we always say it with my partner, whatever happened here in the US 20 years later, it came to Czech Republic. Uh -huh. I don't know if I've heard this group. I'll look them up. 
Yeah, they had a couple of one hit wonders. So I guess more than a one hit wonder, but they were really popular in the 70s. And I don't know if they were Australian or British. I can't remember. But when I tell a lot of people who are from here, they just crack up. (laughs) (laughs) They had a hit song called Saturday Night. So that was my first concert. I remember my parents putting cotton balls in my ears and it being very loud. (laughs) Sounds fun. And we would go to record industry conventions and Andy Gibb and the Bee Gees would perform and Neil Diamond and Barry Manilow. My dad used to love the Bee Gees. Yeah. That's funny. That was his favorite band. When we would drive to tennis tournaments, that's always the band he would listen to. Oh, really? And he would try to sing. He doesn't know any English. So he would make up his own words and try to sing to the BG song. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, they were huge. I mean, everything from Bruce Springsteen, the Rolling Stones. Wow. My dad was pretty cool. I remember being in eighth grade and him taking me and my friends to a Madonna concert at Radio City Music Hall. Wow. So, yeah, it was fun. It was a fun thing to get tickets. And my dad was not on the creative side of things. He wasn't a producer. He was on the business side. There wasn't a whole lot of contact with artists from a creative standpoint, but we got some good access, which when you're a kid is, is fun. Yes. Music, everything. (laughs) Yes, I agree. That must've been a blast. How did your dad get into music? So my father originally is a lawyer by training. And after he graduated from law school in New York, he went into city government. And my father's aspirations were really to work in government. He was very passionate about it. He was a huge fan of Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy and So he worked in the New York City administration, and he worked for the mayor. He worked in that for a number of years, and I don't remember the details, but I remember him meeting someone who became a pretty well-known figure in the music industry. His name is Clive Davis, and he was enamored with music and interested in the business and thought he could get into something very creative and fun with Clive, and it also was going to be a more financially lucrative path to take than government. So he went over and they formed Arista Records. And that's kind of where he got his start at CBS and Arista Records and went on from there. He's still very interested in government and his passion is history and government and politics. So he never lost sight of that. Yeah. So interesting. Seems like he followed a lot of his passion. He has a lot of interest that he keeps close. Yes. How is it to grow up in a Jewish family where both your mom and dad Jewish? Yes. In Czech, we don't have that many Jewish people. But when I moved to New York or New Jersey, I was puzzled how many Jewish communities or how big the Jewish community is when we were looking for houses. And I was impressed how diligent people are. Mm -hmm. They had two or three dishwashers at times, because if you're really strict Jewish, you have to separate the dishes and you may need different fridges even for storing different food. Yeah. So it was the first time, I guess, for me growing up in a family that wasn't very religious to see how very compartmentalized 
that can be and people being very diligent even about food and how they treat it yes was something interesting and eye-opening mm -hmm. how's your family and your traditions we did not keep kosher i only know one family growing up who did so i would say my jewish upbringing was religious in the sense that My parents were involved in our synagogue, but I was what's considered reform Jewish. We practiced a reform. There's Orthodox, conservative, and reform. And it's the Orthodox or some ultra-conservative who keep kosher. So our home, very loose. It was more culturally oriented. We did go to services and we observed the holidays. I was bat mitzvahed. My experience of it, it was the world I was in. I mean, as you said, what you observed coming to the East Coast. New York is one of the biggest places that people who came from other parts of the world settled and huge Jewish communities all over the New York area. And my grandparents were born here. Their parents came here from parts of Russia, Poland, and Austria. My grandparents were born and raised in Brooklyn in Jewish communities And my grandparents weren't kosher. They were not very religious. It was, again, more cultural. But their parents only spoke Yiddish. They were not educated. So I grew up around my grandparents and I heard them speak Yiddish. I learned some. But it was really more all the values of family and food and mm -hmm. education. And some of those communities are very insular and they really stick to their world is just those people. That's not at all how I grew up. I grew up while we were Jewish and we had a lot of Jewish people in our lives. I grew up in a New York that was extremely diverse and had experience and friends and people of color and different religions. And, and it was New York. So it's, you've got everything there. And I was very exposed to that. I appreciate my Jewish upbringing. It was very grounding for me. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't have said that at the time when I was young, but as I look back, it was a place to connect as family. And it was fun. A lot of fun activities to do, but I don't associate them with being Jewish. I just associate them with family, if that makes sense. Yes, that sounds fun. I've never really had any traditions. Mm. So it's uh, interesting. Really? Yeah, we never really followed any. My dad and my dad's side of the family were very religious, but my mom was very strict that she's anti-religion. And so she was very firm on me and my sister not following the religious views. And Czech is quite monotonous in a way. I think it's it's becoming more now that there's more different religious, but majority, I would say, Christian, especially the area where I'm from. And my mom was very clear religion is not something she wants us to participate in. So it was interesting conversation in our home mm. between my dad's side and my mom. I bet. I imagine they had to figure out a way to, to navigate that as a couple. <sighs> yeah, navigation, I would say, was very interesting in our family. And that's something you mentioned, challenges with communication and uh, yeah. when you were growing up, good versus the challenge. Mm -hmm. Is that something you would want to dive into and how that shaped you to yes. get into coaching? Or even perhaps I know you have a background in therapy. Yes. What I'll say about it is I think it's probably a lot of things. I believe we all come into our lives with certain lessons to learn and opportunities to grow. I was a middle child. 
my father is a very kind of cerebral person, not that emotionally attuned at the time. He's very much so now as he's gotten older. My dad is interested, is curious, and he's attuned. Whereas my dad was always there for me to talk to as a kid, but not very attuned and not there a whole lot. And my mother was around a lot, but my mother was having some of her own challenges with life, with finding her way in the world, with she had three kids and my father wasn't around a lot. So it was a lot for her to take on. And I had an experience often of feeling like I had to manage a lot on my own. And that was confusing. And so as a result of that, which there are a lot of parts to that, but overall, I'd say I was very interested in how people relate to each other, in how we feel, why we feel what we feel. I was feeling a lot myself, and that made me curious about that world. And at the same time, my mother and my father, in different ways, were very involved in different kinds of philanthropic work from a fundraising standpoint and from an actual work standpoint. So the school I went to was very oriented around, I want to say community service, but it was really the value of caring for the people around you and caring for your community. So I was exposed to all of those were values in my home and values of mine. And so I think from an early time, I was very interested in what became my interest in social work and then therapy. And then that eventually led me to coaching. So I think I just always had a very natural and at times very challenging. It was difficult as a kid to feel so much and to not know where to go with it or how to understand it. That was a very clunky experience when I was young. And I know it led me to where I've gone professionally. Mm, Yeah. Wow. I hear now all of your core from your mom and the community that you mentioned, even through your religion and Druja mm-hmm. Brigham. You also mentioned the Bronx School that was very defining moment for you. And I guess your mom, how she took care of the three kids. It does seem like it really fits together, gives you a sense of what you mentioned, the community and mm-hmm. how do you all work together, grow and thrive and figure this thing called life. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, and I really spent many, (laughs) the majority of my high school years struggling with what that answer is. And I think I looked well, and I knew how to do that. And yet there are a lot of unanswered questions and confusions inside of me. Another thing that just came into my mind that I'm remembering is my parents had a lot of friends and my mother had a tremendous, incredible network of women that she was close to that were in my life. And there were particular women who were psychologists, social workers, therapists, educators, and I would talk to them a lot. And I found in them, I maybe didn't find it in my mother at times when I wanted it, not because of any fault of hers, it was just our dynamic And my mother had her hands full. But I found in these women the opportunity to 
like I really felt seen and I felt heard. And so I had these experiences of that being so important. And it was a real lifeline for me at times. And again, I didn't know that at the time, but as I've reflected on some of those relationships and recently Mm. in the last year, two of those women have passed away. You know, they've been a little more present on my mind and my gratitude for them in my life. So I know that that was a really big, important reality for me that to have people who are there for you, to have people who can help you untangle what's going on inside and support your journey. I am grateful I had, and it definitely led me into want to participate in life in that way. It took me a while to get there. I didn't know that for a while. And then eventually I did. And I think it's what led me to work in the social work field. And then it led me to coaching. Yeah. That really sounds like you created your own support system. And I appreciate what you shared about your mom. I often find we're the worst communicators when it comes to our families. And for whatever reason, we're not able to share with each other Mm -hmm. what we're going through and what we're feeling. It's almost easier to share it with a stranger comes into my mind. Not always a stranger, but you found your own support system within your mom's friends and the community that your mom created. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yes, it's very accurate. Yes. To take it one step further, I never thought of it until recently. My mother intentionally had these women in her life. And I know they were special for her. I didn't know it at the time. Mm. I just thought like, ooh, I tapped into this little secret. Ooh, so-and-so. Well, I can talk to her about that. And I should really ask my mom because I wonder if my mother knew that. Mm. You mean knew that she's creating that mindfully? Was that intentional creation or how did these uh, relationships come together? And was she using them strategically to help her through different challenges and or perhaps even support her kids through challenges? Well, a few questions. Yes. Was she aware? Were these touchstones for her too, these women? I believe they were, but I'm more curious about that now as I'm older Mm -hmm. and I have children and I have daughters and I look at the friends of mine who my daughters do talk to, can talk to, you know, it's like the role of an auntie in a way. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, did she, and did she also know I was going to them Mm. and it doesn't really matter either way. I'm just sort of curious My guess is I'm interested in it now more because of my own children. And I think it's so helpful as we grow up to create community as a mother for my children, because we're not going to go to our parents for everything. It's not designed that way. It it doesn't work. (laughs) Like we need other. And I'm grateful I had other. And I want that for my children too. Yes. The support systems are very important. Yes even looking at it from the athletic view as an athlete and Mm -hmm. talking to a lot of athletes on this podcast, that really seems to be one of the top, if not the top contributor to success. Yes. If you look at the paths that people have gone through, it really seems that the support system that they create or in some ways grow up in, but most of the time create around themselves 
helps them then grow and thrive in their life. If there's a lack of support system, to me, it's becoming more clear even now than than ever as I'm interviewing the people. We eventually fail because we cannot carry the rock on our backs or push in by ourselves at all time. We need good guidance and yes. support system to cheer us on as we keep marching on or just be there for different things that we may want help with or advice or just to talk about things and share our goals with. Exactly. You just defined the role of a coach. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's very true. The coaching I do is what stems out of athletics and acting in all the ways you just said. Yes. Perhaps that's why I still remember our training with Sandy and Allie that we had through Erickson. And that's how I found you. Mm -hmm. And at first, it was a bit strange. But then when I started relating to it, it is so natural. I grew up with coaches. Probably coaches were the people that helped me grow up because I lived on my own since I was 13. And coaches were the people I had in my life the most. I had a tennis coach, conditioning coach, mental coach. Mm-hmm. And we don't find that weird in athletics. Right. That is the given if we want to be great at any sport or even piano or singing, we hire a coach. But then how about life, which is the biggest game we have? Mm-hmm. So we're going to have coaches in all of these different aspects. But how about coach for navigating life in general? That sometimes seems for people very strange. Right. Yeah. So coaching, it seems like you grew up with a strong base of community. Right. Understanding what being surrounded by many different people is like through the diversity of Manhattan, even your Jewish community you were part of through your parents and the support system you created and your experience in your school in Bronx. And then you went on to University of Wisconsin. What did you study? I was an Afro-American studies major. What is Afro-American studies? At some schools, it's called Black Studies. When I was in high school, there were classes I took that were sort of sociology-oriented. So the school I went to is called Fieldston, and it's part of the Ethical Culture Schools. The Ethical Culture Society is something that was formed in New York, I think, Mm -hmm. in the early 1900s. I'd have to check on that. But it it has a longstanding tradition. And the Fieldston School was born out of that intention. And what's at the heart of it is looking at ethics and values. So the heart of the education is that. So what that meant was in my education, I started there in fourth grade and I went through 12th was we were constantly in conversation around ethics, around values. And then obviously the curriculum was everything, every other kind of standard aspect of academics in those years, but it got very specialized in sociology, in different forms of literature. And I remember in 11th grade taking an African-American lit class and I just loved it. It was my first exposure to authors like Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison and the poet Audre Lorde and Ralph Ellison. And so these were writers that I fell in love with their writing and what they were opening up from a sociological standpoint. And living in New York and living in a very diverse world, 
to some extent, in some ways I wasn't, I was white, I'm Jewish, Mm -hmm. upper middle class, that was separate and different. And I was just really interested in all of that. So when I got to Wisconsin, I studied Italian, and I took some other things. But the African American Studies Department at University of Wisconsin is phenomenal. And I went in knowing I want to explore this more. And I wasn't sure how and I really wasn't fortunately burdened with well, what am I going to do with this yet? I wasn't taking classes because my end goal was to become X or Y. Fortunately, my parents really didn't drive that home. And there are a lot of people I knew who had very clear directives from their family. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You have to study this. And I didn't have that. So I just followed what I liked. And I took classes in what I loved. So what that meant in as a majoring in it, to answer your question, Clara, is I took a lot of literature classes and I took a lot of sociology classes. I took a lot of art history, but it was all kind of diving into not just the history of looking, going back to slavery and the African-American experience in the United States in the 1900s. Mm -hmm. It was sort of using that as a base and then asking questions like, well, what does that really mean for our world now? What are we doing? What are we not doing? What are we looking at? What are we not looking at? What do we really feel? And we would sit in groups of white people, black people, all different people of color. Madison's a very diverse school. Mm -hmm. And we would talk about it. I loved this. This was exciting for me. And so I think this also was kind of leaning into my interest in social work. How can I participate? What can I do? What excites me? What has meaning? I felt a sense of responsibility to some extent to participate in my life in a way that's going to help other people. So those classes met me right there. And I loved it. It was a fantastic experience, amazing professors, amazing courses. And I'm really grateful that I I made that choice and that I had the room to make that choice. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing. I feel like we need more of those discussions. As you described, diverse people sitting in a room (laughs) and having open dialogue about the past and the present and the dynamics that are happening. Yes. That seems probably more than anything what this country needs now. Absolutely. I feel like I wish I was a fly on the wall and listen. It sounds really fun. And I see the connection, how it's all fitting and getting into the interest in what you're curious and compliment to your parents that they really didn't push you seem like a specific direction Mm. that they saw you should be going they let you explore what is it that is important for you and what is it that interests you and you had the freedom to decide that for yourself yes I think so look you know there have been there were many moments where I over the years where I was like, God, why didn't you tell me to do this? Why didn't you tell me I had to, you know, like be an architect or a doctor? God, it would have been so much more helpful because freedom of choosing and exploring is wonderful. And I could feel wildly aimless and mm. ungrounded at times. I would see some people who looked like 
they had it all figured out. Now we know nobody does ever, right? But it can be so enticing when people look that way. And some of the judgment that would come up inside of me, like, God, you know, I should really have my shit figured out. I should have a direction and judging that I didn't or that I should. And that would be hard. That would be really hard. And I don't regret it looking back, but it was clunky for sure. Yes. And still can be, of course. I do agree. The space, especially growing up in the teens or even early 20s, or the society, well, you're an adult now as you turn 18, right? Your Clint is an adult. Nothing really has changed since 17 or 17 and 364 days. So the mindset changes and suddenly you should be deciding on your own and trying to figure life out. Mm -hmm. I remember that 18 years old and the new expectations as well. That was the hardest year for me and navigating how to grow up, even the earlier 20s, look into who I really am and what I want to do. I wouldn't want to go back. It takes a lot of effort. Absolutely. Oh, I wouldn't want to go back either. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad we shared the same. We've survived. Nah. <laughs> yes. I want to make one comment on something you said a few minutes ago about the conversations that you feel like we should be having now and certainly what's going on and what's been uncovered at a deeper level in terms of prejudice and racism and how we're all living together. I so agree. It's been huge. And I've been reflecting on that myself and how and in what way I can how I want to join that conversation more. I've been connecting more with people I went to high school with because I've moved away from some of those conversations really in the last 10, 15 years in that regard. And I just think it's time. If you haven't been doing it, it's essential to being on the planet right now. So I just want to really express my support. Yes. Thank you, Liz, for stating that and seeing your background and how you grew up. I can't think of a better person to take charge and start leading those discussions. I would love to join in. I do think we need more open dialogue and unfiltered, perhaps, because the news are skewed. Yes. The way I see it on either side of the ball, there doesn't seem to be honest intellectual discussion nowadays very much. Yeah. I would think some of the podcasts I listen to are the most honest platforms that I find Looking for it in the news is just really hard. Everybody has an agenda. So I agree. Hopefully someone, somehow we can figure it out. The tide is turning, I think. We'll see. And I think it takes each one of us to keep turning towards and be willing to be in the conversation. Yes, I agree. Going back to your university, then you went to Italy, Rome. How did you decide on that? Why Italy? Why Rome? When I was 15, I was very fortunate to be able to go to Italy on a program that I think my parents found for me. I, I don't remember finding it. They were just very, very supportive of all of us traveling and getting out in the world and seeing the world. And my parents loved Italy. That's kind of all I knew. I knew they loved it. And I don't, to be perfectly honest, at 15, I don't know why I chose it other than, oh, my parents love Italy. Yeah, I'll go there. And the program was to go live with a family 
where you just have an immersive experience and then with an, a group, a small group of students travel around and learn various aspects of Italian culture and history. So I got to do that. And when I went, I just fell in love with Italy. I fell in love with the language. I didn't speak a word when I got there and I left proficient eight weeks later. It's at an age and an experience where you're a sponge and that set me on a trajectory. So I studied it in high school. I then took it in college. I went for a semester in college and I studied in Florence. It was just this place I loved and I knew I wanted to go live there, not as a tourist, but to really experience everyday life there. You know, obviously Italy is such a tourist destination and so much of it is oriented in part, you know, in some cities around tourism And I didn't want to live that way. So when I was finishing up college, my best friend and I, who similarly loved Italy, we decided we're just going to go live there. We're not going to launch into jobs and do what a lot of the other people around us were doing after graduating from college. And we're going to go move to Rome. And we picked Rome, I think, because we both had studied in Florence and we thought Rome, it's bigger we don't know it as well. That felt like a logical challenge that we could wrap our minds around. Also, we had a couple friends, we had a couple connections of people we knew there. So we thought, well, we might get leads on an apartment or a job. So let's go there. And we went and we lived there for a year and it was just amazing. Not as easy though, to live in Italy as a resident to stand in line, to pay your phone bill at the post office. This was before the internet and everything. There was nothing efficient about Italy. There's a lot that's efficient about Italy now, but it wasn't. So it was just great. It was amazing. It was scary. I worked. I worked in a shoe store, which was really scary and fun. And I took art classes and we just lived. It was fantastic. Wow. Sounds like a great experience to embrace yourself in a completely different culture in life. Yes, it really was. And when I was there, I remember we didn't have an end date to our time there, per se. Mm -hmm. We had to make enough money to pay our rent. And I don't think either one of us thought we would be there indefinitely, but we had no end date. And then something just sort of shifted where... I can't speak for my friend, but I know for myself, I was like, "Mm, it feels like it's time to just go back. This is completing. My friend, I think, felt the same way. So it felt like a, it had a beginning, middle, and an end experience. We got to dictate our own timeline, which was really helpful for me to choose when it was time to go. And it was time to go. Interesting. How were your parents with that decision? There's no internet. So it's not like now you can call them anytime via FaceTimes and send emails. Right. I found my best friend, we both agreed we're going to Italy for, we'll see how long we feel like going for. I'll tell you when I'm coming back. Was that how the dialogue went? (laughs) How did they feel about it at that time? My memory of it is that they were supportive. They said, well, if you can find a way to make money and were they were supportive financially too. They gave me some money, but they weren't giving me regular, you know, it wasn't like they were financing me on a monthly basis. They gave me some and 
they were supportive. They're like, great. If you can find a way to make it work. And they had a couple connections. So they called someone, which is how I eventually got a job in the shoe store. But they were like, great. We had a phone number and we would talk on the phone every so often. We wrote letters. And as I think about it, like that's extraordinary that they were so fine with it. Not in a way, I, they you know they trusted me. They, my parents gave me a lot of freedom when I was young. Mm-hmm. They believed I could handle it. I think they just had a lot of faith in my ability to make solid choices for myself. So I don't recall it having any other element than that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is brave. So it's like, we trust you. We've raised you. You had a support system. We believe you can survive go have fun, experience different culture. Yeah. And remember at 15, they supported me going. At 15, they said, yeah, go live with a family. It was part of a program. So I wasn't just going totally on my own, but they were up for it eight years prior. So here I was, I knew I could speak the language now. I was older. Yeah. They just had a lot of trust in me. Which I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but, <laughs> right. but, you know, I had a lot of fun too. Seems like you had a good proven record. You can make good decisions. I would guess they didn't have a reason not to trust you. Exactly. I think that's accurate. How was that decision to then, um, it is time. Italy was so much fun, great experience. You mentioned you came into a realization that it is just time for you to do something else. Was there anything else to the decision other than your intuition and feeling? Anything else that prompted the end of the Italy adventure? I recall feeling as though the experience was wonderful. And after 10 months or so, I didn't see myself building a life there in the long term. From a professional standpoint, I mean, we had made some friends, but Mm. it felt as though this had run its course. And I think I was ready to dive into something deeper. And I didn't see that happening there. And so the logical thing was to go back to New York. I knew I was going to go back to graduate school for social work when I was an undergrad. That was an intention of mine, but I wasn't quite ready for it yet. I knew I wanted to wait and I wanted to do some other things or live life more before I went dove back into a graduate program because I knew it would be rigorous. And I also knew it was a big commitment just in terms of my time and my attention. And so I wasn't ready for that yet. So by the time Rome was winding down, I wasn't sure if I was ready to apply yet, but it felt closer to me. That's as well as I can probably articulate it. That makes sense. And the the interesting thing, based on everything you just shared, you come back and you end up working in the music industry. When I'm hearing what you're saying, what of your life or even upbringing, you were drawn into the social studies, probably a bit of history, art. So you had a good blend of interests that your dad had and your mom, the circle that your mom had. But you came back and seemed like ended up choosing the entertainment industry. Is that correct? Yes. I got home. I knew I had to get a job. I knew I had to start something. 
I looked at who do I know? Where do I know people? And it was there. And I thought, well, let me explore this. Let me see if this is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so I got a couple of internships and then I didn't really like the record business. I mean, it was fun, but it didn't really do much for me. But then I got into the temp pool at HBO, which was a success. It was kind of a thing to get into it. HBO was just such a fun solid place to work. They had great benefits. Their salaries were good. And I just thought, well, I don't think records are my thing. Maybe HBO would be, and I'll try that. It was kind of like an offshoot, different form of entertainment. And I worked there for a while in the temple, and then I got a permanent job. And I stayed at HBO, gosh, for quite a few years. And that was a wonderful experience. I met great people. I met who became my husband there. And it also helped me realize that it was time to go back to what I originally knew I was interested in, which is go back to social work. I was surrounded by incredibly creative people who were so lit up by what they were doing. And in my experience, when you're around people who are that inspired and passionate about what they're doing, you have no choice. I had no choice but to ask to feel if I feel the same way. And I didn't. I appreciated what they were doing. I appreciated the work I was doing, but it didn't light me up like that. And those are hard paths to take too. Like you have to love what you're doing or at least be so committed to wanting it that you're willing to put in the work as it is with any profession. And I just knew this isn't it. And for so many years, I had this other deeper calling and it was affirming to me. It's like, oh, it's time. And I started filling out my applications and studying for my entrance exam. So it led me to what was next. It really seems to me that you have this internal intuition, very figured out or tune in because every decision you took, you went back to your checking in with yourself. How am I feeling? Is what I'm doing purposeful? Is it bringing me joy and fulfillment? And if that measurement wasn't accurate or high on the fulfillment level, it seemed like you knew it is time for you to change and do something else that would be more fun and exciting for you. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you frame it that way. I think that's accurate. I wanted to and was willing to go on different adventures and try different things. And there were things that I could connect with. And then there were things that I couldn't. It was an instinct. It was a gut feeling. And look, I'd say sometimes I've felt my gut and I then questioned it to discern what's my gut and what's the perhaps my ego, or is that someone else's voice I'm listening to? Like Sometimes it's been really clear and easy to discern, and other times it was a little bit more challenging. But I'd say from a professional standpoint, been pretty well dialed in to my gut. Mm. And sometimes I would look at other people. My sister is, has been wildly successful from an early age. I'd look at other friends and looking at more of the success from a financial standpoint, from a status standpoint, you know, the 
kind of logical excelling that people do on paper. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't doing that as much. It, it wasn't happening quite that way for me for a while. And that was a little hard. I would be like, huh, oh, is, is my gut really guiding me the right way? <laughs> is that what I should be doing? And it wasn't without question or getting distracted by what someone else is doing. I think I I kept following what I knew in my heart was the right answer for me. You had very successful few years at HBO that helped you realize that is not what you're passionate about. And then you decided to enter a program in master's in social work in Southern California at age 27. Looking back, obviously, it's easier to look back in our lives than to try to look forward when we're at the intersection. It seems like that is really fitting with your interests and with who you were and even your upbringing. How was that experience? And then really, that seems like that set the path towards your social interest therapy and then led to your coaching practice, correct? Yeah, I was very clear that it was time to go to grad school. It was time to dive into all of what I had been interested in. I studied a little social work in undergrad. It was time to go full on. And and it was at that time, actually, that I moved to Los Angeles because I was living in New York. My boyfriend at the time came out to LA because he got a writing job in television and we decided we want to stay together. We broke up, we were long distance. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to apply in LA and I'll apply in New York and we'll see where I get in. And I got in in both coasts and we decided, well, let's do this. So I moved out and I went to USC and I moved in with him and the program was great. The social work program is you immediately have an internship. So you're immediately not just in a classroom learning all kinds of different aspects of social work, psychology, working with people, but also I was directly then working in environments, you know, just learn as you go, which is, I think, the best way to learn. And it was wonderful. Two years full time. And I was very committed to that profession and getting my license. So I did that. I graduated in 2000 and I immediately got all my hours. I worked in an outpatient clinic and completed all my hours. And then I left the profession for a little while when I had my children. I stayed home with them and then started to make my way back in small amounts, doing a group here or taking a client there. So I was working as a therapist and I did some group work for a while, all kind of under the umbrella of of being a licensed clinical social worker. And then I was introduced to the field of coaching and I really pivoted in all kinds of ways. I would say now and over these last, I think it's been seven or eight years that I've been working as a coach, I have not left all of that. I incorporate it in ways at times with the coaching I do. So all that work, all that training, all that education has only lent itself to the way I work with people today in a coaching context, though, which is very different than a therapy context. Yes, 
Thank you for stating that. That has been on my mind for a while. I wonder how much of the therapy experience helps you now as a coach to reframe or even see the things and how you're able to reframe them to coaching. Can you tell me more about that? Your path is very unique and it seems to me all the skills you've been accumulating since you were a kid, even with your family and communities, it, it really you're putting them into practice now in your everyday job as a coach. Um, the therapy probably very specifically, how does that tie in into your coaching practice? whether you're a therapist or a coach, the way you work and the value you bring is all of it. Like, you know, these professions, being a coach or being a therapist is so, you know, it's not formulaic, even remotely. And it's just so specific to you as a person. And it's you and the other person and the relationship you can create. So personally, I have a lot of pride and I value my social work and therapy skills Because I think what mostly assists me and I think what's of value to the people I work with is the quality of my listening. As I'm listening to someone share about something that's happening or, you know, it could be a relationship in their life, whether it's professional or personal or a challenge and something that's occurring in their life. I'm going to ask questions based on what I'm hearing. And I think I'm listening for a lot of different things. This isn't something that I, I don't have like a checklist in front of me and I'm, I'm going through in a therapy context and in some forms of psychology, you're looking at diagnosing someone or you're looking for where the problem is or what's the thing that needs to be fixed in some way. And I don't hold it that way. And by the way, not all therapists or psychologists, you know, look at it that way at all. I'm just saying in a broad stroke, um, I think that can be a filter that is used and I don't approach it that way at all. And yet I think all our whole lives inform how we may think and what we may feel in the present moment. And I strongly believe that that if listened to, if seen and if supported with both love and push, then you can help someone realize their lives in whatever way they want to be even more fulfilling or more satisfying or whatever the person's going for. I think anything is possible for people regardless of from where they came. Mm-hmm. I think people want to be heard. People want to be seen. Sometimes people don't really have people in their lives who are able or willing to hear what's true, particularly a lot of the corporate clients I have. Sometimes when we get into the coaching, it's the first time in a very long time or ever that anyone's asked them questions about them on a deeper level. People share that it's very relieving to go there. Now, for some people, it's very confronting, and they don't want to go there. And it's not useful to them. And so for me, like, it's part of my job to be listening for what do people want? What do people need? How can I help them get to that next level of peace and fulfillment? And we do that in all different kinds of ways. So it's always 
tailored to the person. And I think it helps to have done your own work on yourself and be in a regular conversation with yourself about your own, just your own challenges. Because to me, it's very important to give people the space to be real and to have people hear them and all that in service to where do they want to go. I love that. What I'm hearing is you're talking about establishing the support system that you become for them and you're the person that listens to their some of their deepest desires that perhaps they haven't been asking a long time and help them move to a world of possibilities instead of looking at it from just, well, this is broken. Maybe what you mentioned in the therapy world, you look at more in the diagnosis But really, the coaching is no matter what the reality is, who do you want to become and what do you want to do and how do we get you to the world of possibility? Is that accurate? That's what I heard you say. Very accurate. A beautiful encapsulation of everything I said. Thank you. And um, about clientele, you have many different clients right now as a coach, Mm -hmm. wide variety, doctors, lawyers coaches, therapists, actors, writers, engineers, stay-at-home moms and dads. How do you choose the people you want to coach? When I'm choosing to work with someone, what I'm really listening for is how much someone is wanting and willing to start to be in a courageous conversation with themselves and is wanting something more or different. Now that that doesn't have to be grand, you know, like when I work with people, it's not that they want to make some enormous change in their lives. And so it has to be big and shiny and flashy, not at all. Like sometimes the most courageous conversations to be in with ourselves could look in some ways subtle, but have a profound impact on their lives. So that's what I'm listening for. Like how willing And how much is someone wanting to slow down and look and be in conversation with themselves and with me about their life? And a lot of what comes up in all that is around leadership, how much people want to develop stronger leadership in their own life. And that's applicable in every profession. I think that's probably why you see I have a variety of clients who work in a variety of fields because leadership, the practice of leadership is applicable everywhere as a parent, as a painter, as a lawyer, as an athlete, you know, everything. Yes. And we all can be leaders. It's not really based on the hierarchy. It is how we decide to act in our lives. Yes. Thank you for mentioning the leadership and slowing down. Those are two things I have written down here. And I have noticed on your website, you have specifically the leadership spelled out and you're helping clients define what leadership is and what does it mean to be a leader in their own whole life, internally and externally. Yeah. I would argue leadership is probably one of the things we have been perhaps missing a little bit in the past year or so as we look at what's happening in this country. Curious if you can share your observation or any examples 
how can we personally grow more leadership? Because often I find that's the problem that we're looking to different leaders or people in the hierarchy. And while I wish, and I think we all wish they were noble and have a great leadership style, it's not always the fact. How can we implement our own leadership in everyday life and help influence just our own personal lives and the people around us? How can we help grow leadership on a personal level? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll say what I've seen in my own life and what I see consistently in my clients' lives, no matter what their position is, no matter what their business is, no matter what they're up to in the world, is that one of the hallmarks to cultivating greater leadership is in slowing down, which you mentioned, and I just want to really underscore, is I see moving at such a fast pace. Mm. I mean, we obviously live in a very fast culture and a fast world. And there's this emphasis on pace, needing to be fast, get there quickly. And that quick is somehow better. And what I'm finding time and time again, is that people have no compass for where they are or where they want to go other than they want to go fast. And so it really interferes with developing strong leadership, which to me is all about inspiring other people, collaborating with people, being inspired yourself. And so slowing down is the number one action that I've seen be profoundly helpful in people's lives. Because once you slow down, you start to look around, you start to take your own pulse and temperature around, well, wait, what do I really want here? What am I really going for here? What do I really think? What are people around me telling me? You kind of bring your view back to what's right in front of you. Mm. And if we don't know what's happening right where we are, we don't have a very good shot at creating much that's of value in the world, much that is satisfying or fulfilling for every one of us. Yes, I love that. And thank you for the slowing down because that's, Personally, one thing I strongly resonate with now, but I've struggled (laughs) for quite a few years. I still remember during the breakthrough leadership with Ali and Sandy, when they mentioned slowing down, I was like, what? I love going fast. Why should I ever slow down? I can just ride the hill up and my fast speed bike and keep going. Right. Although I was quite intrigued by slowing down, but slowing down wasn't something that is natural to me. And uh, through had these three years of working with you, the slowing down has been so fun. And mm-hmm. I found a new skill in the slowing down and joy. And the stillness allows us to see things in the world in a different lens. Yes. So I want to invite anybody who hasn't experienced the act of slowing down to experiment with that. And I have gone personally through the pain of uh, learning how to slow down. But um, I do agree that it's probably one of the key things to getting clarity and tuning in 
to what is it we want in our lives and what is it that fulfill us and how can we become a better leader in whatever we decide to put our energy and mind into? Absolutely. Any other tips that you would want to mention or maybe if someone wants to, oh, I'm listening to Liz, I want to take this tip to get better. Anything you would want to share with the audience that has worked for you and your clients? Showing up on the court and really practicing with sincerity and genuine heart. Yes. A big one to me is being willing to do it badly. Mm. To not wait. I see this a lot. People waiting to say something or to take action if they're sure it's going to look good. (laughs) Yeah. And I get that. Believe me, I've had my own journey with that and I still do. And I think it's one of the greatest, most productive skill I've seen people take into their lives is to be willing to be messy, to be willing to be clunky, to be willing to be awkward. Because what people don't realize is that most people are feeling exactly the same way. And I also think people spend weight, like we all spend so much time wondering, what's that going to look like? What are people going to think of me? Particularly women. Yes. But it's not limited to women. I have plenty of male coaches who don't want to look like they don't know the answer. Mm. And so they stay quiet. And what they really do is they end up, what we all do is we end up withholding value we can bring. And so be more courageous, be willing to be clunky and see what happens. Because what I've seen happen time and time again is that when someone does it risks in that way, it invites other people to participate as well. I had a client just a week ago who works in a pretty competitive industry. He supervises a number of people they're doing work in the world that a lot of people are counting on right now in the pandemic. And he's on these calls and it's like crickets on the phone because nobody is willing to say, well, this is what I think we should do, or I think we need to call attention to this. So it's like a standoff and everyone's being quiet. And finally, I've been working with him on getting over or through on the other side of his own discomfort in being the one to call out what he sees. And he's completely willing to get on the court. And this was a new threshold. So Mm. he did it. And what he found was everyone else on the call, it was so great, was like, oh, thank God you said it. Oh my God, I've been thinking the same thing. Mm. It was such a breakthrough. It's like in a way to get over yourself, that sounds a little crass, but I mean that with love and with compassion, so that everyone else will be willing to say what's true too. Because then you're in the pot, like you talked about possibility, then you're in possibility. Yes. I love that story and the example. It's almost like we're throwing our own rocks and pieces of wood under our own feet, maybe because of a fear of failure or self-judgment. And so often we don't give ourselves even the opportunity to follow through with the idea or experience because we're already in the thought of, well, 
personally, why should I start a podcast? Yes. Who would want to listen to Clara talking? <laughs> so I could very much live in that world yes. instead of trying it and having fun while doing it. And it's been a clunky experience, but it's been so much fun. And I enjoy these discussions and slowing down. So I applaud you, Clara, that you are doing it and you're willing to do it. Not only is it fantastic for you, which is most important, but it's a great model. I think we all need people to be doing that more because it's inspiring. And for you to do your podcast and talk about and write about, I know you're writing more too, to do all these things that are exciting for you that you're interested in and to express it out in the world. It invites other people to do the same in their lives. And that, that changes the world. Thank you. I know that's a big thing to say, but I think it's really true. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a fun experiment for sure. And I uh, appreciate having you in my support system. You got it. There was one other thing I was going to add to your question in addition to what we've talked about, mm-hmm. which is to me, a big component is around self-trust mm-hmm. to whether it's a person or a community or a creative endeavor, like a writing practice, or it's playing the piano or whatever it is that can assist someone in cultivating greater self-trust, that is going to pay dividends in all areas of life, in your leadership, in all the ways you show up. And because when you trust yourself more, you're in your own skin all the time more, and you're being your own authentic self. And that I think is essential. Like it's foundational from where I sit to do the things or surround yourself with the people, the supports that help you develop that and strengthen that. Thank you for that. You've shared a lot. What I'm hearing is going back to the support system, being courageous Don't let your fears be the enemy of your progress. Yes. Being your authentic self, that is the number one hit nowadays everybody talks about. Mm. But we don't always talk about how do you grow to the authenticity Mm. and how do you, what you mentioned, the self-trust. I think to me that is really key. How do we cultivate self-trust? Any tips or anything you want to talk about on that? I like to have a conversation with people around where they are in what does trust mean to them? And so to ask, to ask yourself, when you're trusting someone or when you trust yourself, where do you feel it in your body? What does it look like? How do you feel? What do you tell yourself? I guess to have an inquiry around trust for you Mm -hmm. and if you're operating from a place of trust and where you're not. Because trust is foundational in all relationships. So I like with my clients to look at where they are in trust in certain relationships in their life, in all relationships in their lives, but in the ones that are coming up in our coaching is to slow down and take a look at, like, get accurate, get real with yourself about what you're really feeling and thinking as far as trust. And I've been on my own journey with this as well. Nothing I do with my clients isn't work I'm not doing with myself. And so as far as trust, 
Um, what I'm seeing is coming up a lot right now as I'm having these kinds of conversations with a couple clients in particular is that they're like, I, you know, I never think about it or it's not something I really pay attention to. And we slow that down. And as we slow it down and we look at it, realizing where a lot of the trust they're not feeling, they're not slowing down enough to look to really give enough credit and credence to what they think themselves. So it's kind of like they're going against themselves all the time. And then they're going out in the world into their lives and relationships and families and work disconnected from what they really believe and think. And that's a generalization. That's a strong statement. It shows up to different degrees at different times. But I think it's an important topic to slow down on. And so it starts with trust of ourselves. Because if I don't trust myself, I'm not going to be trusting really of anyone or anything outside of me. So to bring it back to an inquiry with yourself, and I like to ask questions of my clients, like, what would assist you in trusting yourself more in this regard? Mm. And sometimes that means spending more time with themselves, giving themselves permission to engage in certain activities that really help them relax and take a break and bring more joy. Sometimes it's having a hard conversation or potentially hard conversation with someone about something that they've avoided, but they, they can trust themselves to, to do it and that they can work through it. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think it comes back to slowing down with yourself and be willing to look at this as a topic. I love to ask people, and it seems to people really like to think about when they were younger, where were they as far as trust? Because for some people, there wasn't a whole lot of it based on where they grew up and their home environments and, and what that was like for them. And for other people, it was in spades. And it's not something they've thought of cultivating. I hope I gave you some things to go on there, Clara, as far as what people can do. Yes, I think that's fantastic. And I love you mentioning the trust. And it really made me think of this whole situation we're in. Mm. As I'm reflecting what stood out to me that I think there's in general, we call lack of leadership, mm. but it seems like it's directly related to the lack of trust. Yes. We don't trust each other. Things are so paralyzed that we don't trust that the other person is describing things accurately. Yeah. And then it becomes such a mess and inconsistency in the world. I think probably partly because we don't even trust ourselves and we don't trust each other. Yes. And then perhaps the words we say aren't in line with what we're feeling Again, because we have self-judgment and we're missing the trust in whatever we decide to set our mind into. So I love that. Maybe all of us need to dive deeper into how we're handling trust ourselves and in with the people that we work with and we live with every day of our lives. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And for me, it's linked to integrity. I think the biggest advantages and the way our lives have shifted is that we've had 
potentially more time to slow down and simplify and look at ourselves more. So I think that's been a huge benefit in my life over the last 10, 11 months. If we start with us, everything is an extension out of that. And there's a real emphasis at times and particularly lately of looking at all the chaos that's going on externally. And I'm not saying that's all not real and happening and important. And I personally find, and I'm finding in my work with my clients, that when we can bring it back into what's happening inside of me and what do I need and how can I show up better, what are my values? And to really look at me and extend out from there, we can change our reality sometimes very quickly and sometimes it's a longer process, but that there's so much more possibility from that place. Yes, I love that. Thank you. And uh, I'm sorry, it's two minutes here. I've never run out of time so far. I think I dived in too much into your interesting childhood, which I loved that you shared that with us. And then we ran into some technical difficulties. I know I had so many more things here on the list list to cover, and we didn't get through all of that. And I want to be mindful of your time. So uh, let's maybe end here. I know there are so many more things we could discuss and talk about. Absolutely. This was fantastic. And uh, I appreciate you sharing all you have shared. And uh, the technical difficulties definitely threw a wrench into, into our time. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate all your thoughtful questions and giving me this opportunity to reflect myself. This has been a real, a real gift. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Liz. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye.